Good morning. In today's headlines, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy seem to be nearing a deal on the debt limit. But will the two sides be able to finalize an agreement before default? As Memorial Day approaches, we hear from a retired major general who's doing all he can to support special ops personnel and their families. A U.S. Marine says the dance company he founded gives veterans and others with inner trauma a way to let it out. We share details of the group's performance tonight. And the inspiring story of a top chef who overcame his troubled past. Find out how he beat his addiction to alcohol and what he attributes his success to. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. We have made it to Friday, everybody. Happy Friday. Today is May 26th. But to, uh, first, we want to start off with some updates on the debt limit. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are narrowing in on a two-year budget deal to avoid a government default. But just days from a deadline, the two sides have been unable to agree on spending levels. They are hoping to reach a budget compromise this weekend. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the main points of contention. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said Thursday every hour matters as the deadline for default approaches. The top congressional Republican says he's working 24-7 with Biden's team to reach a budget agreement. The White House has to become very serious about this. And that's why we worked well past midnight last night. Um, the team they have is very professional, very bright. Um, they know where the differences are. McCarthy is holding out for steep spending cuts that Republicans are demanding. The White House has offered to freeze next year's 2024 spending at current levels and restrict 2025 spending, but McCarthy says that's not enough. Anonymous sources suggest talks could be hung up on Republicans' demands for stiffer work requirements on people who receive government food stamps, cash assistance and health care aid. The White House is reportedly considering scaling back its plan to boost IRS funding, and the GOP side could be easing their demand to boost defense spending. Even if a deal is struck in the coming days, McCarthy has promised lawmakers he will post the bill 72 hours before voting, now likely Tuesday or even Wednesday. I believe everybody should be able to see it, read it, and know what they're voting what? on because this will help put America on a better path. What is the plan? The Democratic-held Senate has vowed to quickly send the package to Biden's desk. But House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries warned Biden and McCarthy on Thursday that Democrats won't automatically be accepting any debt ceiling compromise if they feel it violates the party's core principles. The House adjourned Thursday afternoon for a week-long break, and the Senate is in recess. Lawmakers have been told to be ready to come back to vote if a deal is reached. It is unfortunate that House Republicans have chosen to get out of town before sundown when we are facing a dangerous default. President Biden is heading to the presidential retreat at Camp David in Maryland on Friday and to his home in Wilmington, Delaware on Sunday. Biden said Thursday there will be no default and that negotiations with McCarthy are about the outlines of what the budget will look like. It's about competing visions for America. Lawmakers are expected back at work Tuesday, just two days from June 1st, when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the U.S. could start running out of cash to pay its bills and face a potentially catastrophic default. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. McCarthy tweeted out yesterday that he's staying in D.C. as long as it takes to reach a deal. Any deal will have to be a political compromise. It's going to need support from both Democrats and Republicans to pass a divided Congress. 
House Republicans of the Freedom Caucus have been pressing McCarthy to add conditions instead of making concessions to close the deal. House Democrats have endorsed the idea of Biden invoking the 14th Amendment to raise the debt limit on his own. The president has ruled that out for now. The Supreme Court made a unanimous ruling yesterday on a case involving government confiscation of real estate property. The justices ruled that Hennepin County, Minnesota, violated the rights of 94-year-old resident Geraldine Tyler by taking her property without paying just compensation. Tyler owed $2,300 in unpaid taxes plus interest and penalties, totaling $15,000. So the county took her condo in 2015 and kept the entire $40,000 after selling the property the following year. Lower courts sided with the county before the justices agreed to step in. The ruling gives the Minneapolis senior a new chance to recoup some of her money. Tyler was represented by Pacific Legal Foundation. The law firm says Minnesota is among a dozen states that allow local jurisdictions to keep excess money after confiscating property front paid taxes. Pacific Legal is now sending letters to all states that permit what they call home equity theft, demanding they change their laws to comply with the Supreme Court decision. Next up, a look back at the devastating flood that swallowed up Kentucky's Appalachian region last year. One of the flood's victims has moved into a new home. It was one of the worst floods in Kentucky's history, killing 40 and damaging nearly 9,000 residences. And it happened in one of the poorest places in the country. The fast-rising waters shoved homes off foundations, blocked roadways, and submerged small mountain towns under several feet of muddy water. Thousands had to grab what they could from home and flee. Deborah Hansford lost her home in the flood, but has now moved into a new one. So, uh... Yeah, I'm feeling more optimistic about everything now that got me a home now. We couldn't build the house high enough on her existing piece of property. And so she agreed to move about a mile down the road to a a piece of property we were able to buy. And um, we got her a new house and she moved in last week. Only about 5% of affected homeowners in the Kentucky disaster carried flood insurance. Traditional homeowners insurance does not cover damage caused by flooding. And 60% of the households damaged had annual incomes of $30,000 or less. The federal government has provided some relief, though residents say it's still not enough and hasn't come fast enough. FEMA has doled out about $105 million to victims of the Kentucky flood. And... On the topic of extreme weather, hurricane season predictions are in. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said yesterday that the Atlantic hurricane season will bring up to nine hurricanes. Their forecasters estimate 12 to 17 named storms, of which five to nine will develop into hurricanes. Up to four of those are forecast to become major hurricanes during the June to November season. Last year, Hurricane Ian was the strongest. That storm spawned 150 mile per hour winds and hit Florida and South Carolina. Over 140 people were killed. And so being able to communicate those risks and what those risks are and not just the category is going to be a cultural shift, right? And a mind shift for the people that live in areas that are, are typically going to say, well, I've lived through a category one and then all of a sudden it's a category three. But we are also in an active era and having a strong El Nino with an active era and such warm SSTs, um, I've only seen it one other time in the historical records. There's not a lot of analog evidence for it. Um, so there's 
that it's definitely kind of a rare setup for this year. During El Nino, winds blowing west along the equator slow down and warm waters is pushed east. That creates warmer surface ocean temperatures and the potential for stronger storms. Have you ever been to a hurricane region? Oh, well, you know, actually I visited New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and it was seven years later and it still looked like it happened just yesterday. Really? Yeah, that was, was down it? in the lower ninth ward. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, the buildings were still dilapidated. You know, they had the spray paint on there to say, to, to signal to emergency responders whether or not wow. they had searched buildings. Wow. Yeah, it's always one thing to hear about it, right? But then to see with your own eyes. Yeah. And I even went to the levee breach there, too. Really, it wow. set a big precedent for the way that they're designed in yeah. the rest of the country. Well, I bet. Yeah. And so we're going to move on to California. Regulators say the state is unlikely to experience electricity shortages this summer. A wet winter filled the state's reservoirs enough to restart hydroelectric power plants that were dormant during the drought. The electrical grid in California struggles to manage high temperatures when everyone turns on their air conditioners at the same time. It got so hot in August 2020 that California's power grid was overwhelmed. The state's three largest utility companies shut off electricity for hundreds of thousands of homes for a few hours over two consecutive days. Similar heat waves in 2021 and 2022 pushed the state to the brink again. And in California, energy planning is challenging but never dull. One year we're in extreme drought and the next we're inundated by atmospheric rivers. We have wildfires and extreme heat waves. California has spent over $3 billion to create a strategic reliability reserve to avoid blackouts during heat waves. And state officials use the money to extend the life of some gas-fired power plants that were scheduled to retire and to purchase large diesel-powered generators. Governor Gavin Newsom yesterday called for the creation of about 150,000 megawatts of so-called new clean power by 2045. However, critics say the wind and solar power as well as electric vehicle industries are heavily dependent on China. And next up, with Memorial Day around the corner, we speak to a retired major general who's doing all he can to support special ops personnel and their families. A U.S. Marine shares insights on how the movement and creativity in dance helps veterans to heal. We bring you the details of the group performing tonight on an aircraft carrier in New York. Welcome back. With Memorial Day coming up, we spoke to the man who runs the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. After Major General Clay Huttmacher retired, he started providing financial support to severely wounded and fallen Special Operations personnel and their children they left behind. Just recently, they expanded the program to include their spouses as well because he says they serve in their way too. So this is a program that aims to be with the families every step of the way. I spoke to the CEO to ask him what makes this foundation so important. Um, the unit is, does the units, especially special ops, I would say, do a really good job of taking care of those families in the near term. But they have a mission to do. We have to get back uh, to defending the nation and doing the nation's business. This organization represents an enduring commitment to those families from cradle to career. And, you know, to me, that's what we should do no less. That's what we, we've learned. And so that motivated me to see this trauma these families are going through and then to see the impactful support 
that as an active duty commander that these, this organization, Special Ops Warrior Foundation, provided. Is there a moment where you thought to yourself, you know, in that moment that everything that you really, every effort that you poured in so far was, everything was worth it? I mean, can you share a story where maybe the people you helped, if you heard feedback from them or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, in fact, I'll share one that I just, uh, we get them all the time, frankly, with these kids. You know, that's what our highest priority is, for, you know, student success. We have sort of strategic objectives, and that's number one. So there's a young lady, Savannah Brown. Her dad was a SEAL, uh, Chief Petty Officer Brown, that was killed in Afghanistan and shot. You know, and it, it was a tragic. He'd been through so much. In fact, there's a book about him called Fearless, which I've read, which was really inspiring. But she just graduated from Arkansas State University with a 4.0 GPA. Um, she is going over to Africa to do an internship um, to help people in Africa. And then she want her goal is to be an attorney, a lawyer, to go on. And to be with her throughout this education, her, her educational journey, and to see her overcome this traumatic event in her life, the loss of her father, and to achieve this kind of success, that's 100% why not just me, but the entire team here at the foundation come to work every day for just for moments like that. What does Memorial Day mean for you personally? Well, I'll share. You know, I've served, obviously, I've served with many people that made the ultimate sacrifice. But I guess what I would share for me personally, who I reflect on Memorial Day is in October 3rd, 1993, you know, the, it's commonly known as Black Hawk Down. That wasn't the name of the mission, but we um, we lost several, several folks that day. But... The one that really, you know, was, was very personal to me was uh, Clifton P. Walcott. He was shot down in Super 6-1 and killed along with his co-pilot, Donovan Briley. I had served in combat with Cliff in Panama during Operation Just Cause and Desert Storm, and his loss hit me particularly hard. In fact, my middle son is Mitchell Walcott Huffock. He's, he's named after Cliff and his family, and I'm still in touch with his son, Robert, who this education or this foundation supported his education and his widow, Chris. So when I think about Memorial Day, you know, for me personally, I think about Cliff and his sacrifice to the nation and how honored I was to have served with him and to have had him as a friend. Thank you so much, Clay Huttmacher. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Evelyn. It was a pleasure to see you today. And thanks for having me. So many inspiring things that he had to say, but and Memorial Day weekend is kicking off. Americans across the country are honoring those who sacrificed everything for our freedom. And now here are a few ways that patriotic citizens are preparing for the federal holiday and day of mourning. American flags are in the ground throughout Arlington National Cemetery. About 260,000 adorned headstones following this year's Flags in Ceremony Thursday. Another 7,000 are along the rows of cremation niches. It takes about four hours to put the flags in with the help of more than 1,000 service members. Memorial Day is dedicated to those who have died serving in the U.S. military. The VA says decorating graves has been part of the commemoration since 1868. 
And the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington might look a bit shinier this week. Each year, volunteers wash it in preparation for Memorial Day. Republican Congressman Mike Waltz of Florida says he started the tribute three years ago as a reminder that freedom isn't free. He's a veteran, as is Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts, who helped with the cleaning. Moulton calls it a powerful sign of appreciation. Tonight in New York City, a U.S. Marines dance company is performing on the Hudson River in Manhattan. The founder of the group says it can allow veterans, their families, and war refugees an opportunity to express themselves and their experiences. He also says dancing gives those with inner turmoil a way to release it, and that the choreographed movements learned in the military can be adapted into something creative and liberating. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on tonight's performance. Ramon Baca began his professional dance career toward the end of high school, but his drive to serve our country motivated him to join the United States Marine Corps. He was deployed to Fallujah, Iraq in 2005. When he returned, he was a different man. And it wasn't until my girlfriend sat me down and said, you know, you're not the guy that I knew before the war. The guy I knew before the war was happy-go-lucky, full of life, artistic. And you're angry, you're depressed, you're anxious, and you're mean. And you're making people afraid of you. Trying not to bounce as much as you can. In 2007, Baca founded Exit 12 Dance Company. His goal was to demonstrate that veterans, military families, and refugees could use dance to express the trauma of their experiences and heal. He often asked for feedback and now says one dancer's advice stuck with him. This person said, as an artist, you have to find that one thing that's within you that is aching to come out and that one thing that only you can talk about. For some, there's a large gap between the military and dance, but Bacchus says the only difference is that choreography in the military is designed for combat. And I remind them that everyone who served in the military is a mover. They've all learned choreographed movement, they've all rehearsed that choreographed movement, and they've all had to perform that choreographed movement somewhere. Dancing gives veterans the opportunity to adapt those movements into something new and creative. That gives us the opportunity to now change that movement, repurpose that movement so that it can tell a story, and a very important story. It's their story. Veterans, families, and refugees recently participated in Exit 12's eight-week workshop called Truths Colliding. They'll perform tonight on the Intrepid aircraft carrier on the Hudson River in Manhattan. The venue itself has particularly special meaning for the participants in Exit 12. To be able to bring our repurposed movement and our repurposed life stories into a place that in itself has been transformed is incredibly huge. Truths Colliding will take the stage Friday at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum at 6.30 p.m. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And next, we hear the inspiring story of a top chef in North Carolina. He was able to overcome his troubled past and beat his alcohol addiction. Having once been in jail, the chef has turned his life around. Now he's fulfilled his dream of owning his own restaurant. He attributes that success to his faith in the divine. Let's have a look. Anthony Caldwell is the chef and owner of 50 Kitchen, a fusion-style restaurant. Once based in Boston, Massachusetts, Caldwell is relocating his restaurant to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. 
Caldwell tells NTD he started cooking around 2004 when he was incarcerated for making wrong decisions in life. I ended up getting a job with the Department of Corrections um, at a place called Milford Kitchen. And I've never, I never cooked anything before a day in my life. And I saw a CCE, which is a certified culinary educator. He took chopped parsley and he sprinkled it on a plate and it changed everything about that dish. And it blew me away. I mean, completely blew me away. Caldwell had been struggling with addiction to alcohol at the time. He said he was able to overcome it with the grace and mercy of God. And I was at home drinking one night and I heard this voice that said, if you don't stop drinking, your career is gonna go downhill and you're gonna die. I said, huh? The voice said it three times. The third time he said it, if you don't stop drinking, your career is gonna go downhill and you're gonna... I walked into Jubilee Christian Church in Boston, said a prayer, asked God to deliver me from alcohol. After he stopped drinking, Caldwell heard the voice again, this time telling him that he needed to do one more thing. He said, if you stop drinking and live your life for me, I promise to give you your own kitchen by age 50. By the time Caldwell reached age 49 in 2017, he was a chef at Harvard University. That same year, he decided to take a leap of faith and realize the vision promised to him by quitting his job at Harvard. I did like a neighborhood Shark Tank pitch I did my pitch and the community voted me in. And when they called Anthony Caldwell, 50 Kitchen, I won. And what was God's promise? He would give me my own kitchen before age 50. So that's how I ended up getting my restaurant. But the challenge didn't end there. Right after Caldwell opened 50 Kitchen, the COVID-19 pandemic hit. We had a ribbon cutting ceremony. Uh, February 23rd, 2020, we were like the hottest restaurant in the neighborhood, new cuisine, very unique. Eight days later, the pandemic hit. I went from thousands of dollars in sales to looking out a restaurant door, chairs up, thinking it was the end of the world. I didn't know what to do, how to handle it, Caldwell says it was a hard decision to close the location in Boston and move to North Carolina, his wife's hometown. But he's excited to open his restaurant on May 20th and serve the local community. Same great food, different location, definitely a different mindset. Watch what happens. Up next, Virgin Galactic just completed its final test run. Next steps include offering customers a breathtaking zero-gravity experience. We hear more about the company's plans after the break. And the four-legged companion of a wheelchair-bound student receives a special accreditation for his loyal services. Find out more after the break. Good to have you back with us. Paying customers will soon be able to experience weightlessness. Virgin Galactic has completed a final test flight before offering brief trips to space. The test flight included six of the company's employees who experienced several minutes of weightlessness on their flight. The crew landed yesterday morning at Spaceport America in southern New Mexico. Now that the final test run has been completed, Virgin Galactic will be moving towards its first commercial flight 
a science mission with the Italian Air Force, followed by a chance for paying ticket holders to experience zero gravity after a year's-long wait. So what, what does it feel like? I think when you're taking off, it feels very normal. It feels like flying kind of business class, sort of, only you're just buckled in a little tighter than, uh, than normal. And then you, know, you climb pretty pretty fast, a little jostle as the rocket turns on. And after that, it just, you're pinned to your seats, accelerating faster than I've ever accelerated before. Weightlessness is such an interesting feeling, but the best way I can describe it is like, it's like a sixth sense. You feel like you've got a different awakening, you know, senses happening in your body. You have more awareness, but also you've got no awareness of your body. Yeah. And I, I just, I hope that so many more people get to experience this because it is indescribable. And I can close my eyes and I can see it. And the sensation, the anticipation, and it's going to be something I'm going to be piecing apart and trying to understand probably for the rest of my life. Virgin Galactic's final test flight came nearly two years after founder Richard Branson beat fellow billionaire and Amazon founder Jeff Bezos to space. Must be an exhilarating feeling so up in the sky. <laughs> the years-long wait sounds like it'll definitely be worth it. Yeah, and the way the crew described it, it was like simultaneously having a feeling of awareness and nowhereness at all. So wild. <laughs> all right, next up, some contraband from Central America was seized from a smuggler at Miami International Airport. That's right, Kevin, two dozen bright green baby parrots were discovered in a passenger's carry-on bag. Wow. They're now being raised by the Rare Species Conservatory Foundation. Authorities became aware of the hatchlings after hearing faint chirping coming from the bag. The passenger smuggling the birds had just arrived from Central America and was heading to Taiwan. He pleaded guilty to wildlife smuggling and could face up to 20 years in prison. And staying in the animal kingdom, a service dog on Monday received a university graduation diploma. The dog, named Justin, graduated alongside his owner after accompanying her to all of her classes at Seton Hall University in New Jersey. Justin's owner received a degree of bachelor in science and education. What a proud doggo. What a great way to end the show. <laughs> yes, that is awesome. Did you see those parrots' beaks? It was really cool. Oh, yeah, really cute. <laughs> yeah, and you know, parrots are not only super intelligent, but they also live for a really long time. Hmm. I did not know that. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. All right. On that note, we want to wrap it up right here. As usual, you can write us at goodmorning at ntd.com. That's the email. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.